the Americans are coming, the Americans are coming. This is what some people might be saying in the UK about the influx of US-based wealth management technology. Which firms are most likely to cross the pond and what will be the impact? All this and more coming up on the next Wealth Management Today podcast. Invest in Others Foundation is a nonprofit that recognizes financial advisors for their exceptional charitable work. The nominations window for the 13th annual awards gala is now open. I was fortunate enough to attend the gala last year, and one of my favorite parts was the video interviews they did with each advisor about their charity work. It was an incredibly moving experience to see the tremendous impact that these charities provide back to their communities and how Invest in Others was helping. If you know a financial advisor who is actively giving back to a charity, please nominate them at investinothers.org forward slash nominate by April 5th. Winners will have a chance to receive up to $50,000. Yes, that's $50,000 for the nonprofit they support. This is a great way to highlight the good that exists within the financial services arena. I'd like to encourage all of my listeners to submit the name of an advisor they know to invest in others since I'm sure their charity could use some of these extra funds to help their cause. I'm a strategy and technology consultant looking to share the latest in ideas, trends, and innovations for our industry. On this, the fourth episode of the Wealth Management Today podcast, it was so much fun to speak with my guest and good friend, Ian McKenna, all the way from jolly old England. I think you'll enjoy it very much. Fintech evangelist, columnist, and financial services futurologist. He founded the Finance Technology Research Center back in 1995, which was nearly two decades before fintech became part of the industry lexicon. The FTRC is a boutique consultancy focusing on how personal finance organizations can communicate more effectively and help their customers make better financial decisions. The firm works with many of the UK's leading long-term savings institutions, financial advisors, and technology providers to identify emerging technologies. While Ian is an expert in the analysis of UK advice technology, around seven years ago, he shifted his focus onto the evolution of digital financial advice around the world. He's an advisor to a number of UK regulators and government departments on policy and strategy for financial services products. Welcome, Ian. Hi, Craig. Good to be with you today. So nice to have you. And, and you know, we see each other so often in conferences and all around the country. And I thought this would be a great way to kind of get a, away from the specific conferences we're talking about and maybe kind of talk about some general issues. And I'm really happy that you were able to make time. It's a pleasure to be here. And yes, interesting to perhaps share some, share some views from an international perspective. Exactly. And speaking of international, um, I just wanted to dive right into some of the things we were talking about uh, pre-podcast. 
when, it, when we're talking about some of the conferences that we've been to and we, we, we do overlap a lot of them, what are some of the things that you take out of the conferences? You, come to, you, you, you do a lot of conferences in the U.S. What are some of the things you're, you, you're taking out of these conferences and what's the biggest uh, trends you're seeing right now? Um, I think uh, it's been probably seven, eight years now. I've been doing between, I don't know, two to three months um, traveling around the world a lot in the US. Um, what I am actually finding more and more is that the Far East is becoming very interesting as well. In fact, I think there is a growing view that perhaps things in Asia, um, I'm certainly getting this perspective, might be outpacing both um, the US and, and the UK. And, and I would, by the way, differentiate um, the UK from the rest of Europe, um, not because I, I'm in favour of the uh, our impending uh, exit from the European Union. On the contrary, I, th I think that's a massive mistake. But um, actually, one thing one does need to recognise about the EU is they move incredibly slowly when it comes to creating new regulations or legislation. It can take seven years to get a, uh, a directive through the EU. In fact, I don't think there's any way of getting it through in less than that time. Well, in a digital world, seven years is about two generations. Um, but, you know, coming back to what I pick up, particularly from the US, um, my what I find in the wealth tech space and the, and the wealth management environment, I think there are two things that really scream out one is typically and, and over the time that i've been doing these regular trips in my experience i can now map on multiple occasions where things things happen in the us about three years before they happen in the uk so um the, those of your listeners who know doctor who a british tv mm. show will know oh, sure. about time travel um, when I'm talking to people over here, I frequently refer to my trips to the US um, as being a bit like getting in a, sh a short-term TARDIS. So I can go and have a look at what's going to be happening in the UK in three years' time. The, there is one big exception to that, which is actually the life insurance industry, mm -hmm. where the UK life insurance industry is probably at least three or five years, if not five years ahead of the life insurance industry in the US. And why is that? I, I think particularly it's because the, the life industry in the US, A, hasn't really embraced technology, B, seems happy with some very, very slow turnarounds and frankly, very poor customer experiences. Hmm. Uh, one one conference I find uh, very useful in the insure tech space um, in the US is is the iPipeline Connections uh, conference, which the next one's actually in Las Vegas in the middle of March. Um, but thinking back to last year's um, conference, there was one particular presentation where they were talking about how long, apparently on average, it takes 56 days to get a life insurance policy underwritten in the US. Um, whereas the comparable, comparable data in the UK is probably 80% of UK life insurance applications are accepted the same day. Well, and, that seems and, like a quite a uh, disparity. 
Yeah, I mean, to be fair, there are, um, it was sort of acknowledged that there are a lot of, lo lot of things that um, American companies could do and to give iPipeline their due. Um, if people took full advantage of the capabilities that iPipeline have, both in the US, because and they've also got a lot of technology in the UK, because iPipeline bought an organization that had actually been set up by the U UK life insurance industry to accelerate the way, the way that uh, technology could enable people to write new business. Um, you know, things could be faster, but there was pretty much, a, well, that's the way it works and everyone's used to it. Personally, I don't think a great customer experience, but, but there you go. And it, it just always strikes me that whilst in the majority of things, I would say the, the US is ahead, um, that's just not the case in life insurance. And there's one other area where it's not the case, which is um, regulation. Meaning? Um, financial services regulation. Um, I mean, in, in the UK, we have a, what is seen as a very prescriptive model by many, but actually with the, with the benefit of hindsight, it actually gives a lot of clarity. Um, and coming across more and more situations where interestingly actually last fall i was at uh, a conference in new york where there were a number of lawyers talking about the uh, comparison between the um us and the U the uk market and several of the american lawyers were actually saying it would be so much better for the us to have a uk type model hmm. where there's very specific um, we, we still have what's called principles-based regulation, but there's a constant flow of information from the regulator in terms of what you can and cannot do, what's good practice, what's bad practice. And they've even gone as far as setting up um, a whole division within the Financial Conduct Authority, which is specifically dem um, put together to facilitate and support um, organizations that wish to come up with new ways of doing things. It's called the advice unit. Um, and, and that in turn is part of a, a larger structure, which is called Project Innovate um, or the Innovate unit. And, and that whole part of the regulatory activity is all focused on facilitating greater use of technology improving customer experience, delivering better consumer outcomes. Um, and that's then led on to a sort of situation where there's a group called GFIN, which I've spoken to you about before, mm -hmm. who um, is, depending on how you categorize them, it's broadly 12 different regulators around the world that are now collaborating on um, financial regulation, sharing back best practice, sharing approaches. And indeed, when we had the head of the advice unit at the FCA to a workshop we ran a couple of weeks ago, um, and one of the things they were sharing was the fact that now through the advice unit, they quite frequently, if they take an organization into the advice unit, and what you can do is basically, if you have a particular project which you wish to run, you can approach the regulator, ask to be taken into the advice unit. You, they, they will take you through a process uh, where they look at everything that's being done. They don't actually give a seal of approval, 
Hmm. But at the same time, they're having a very close look at what you're doing. Um, they tend to bring the ombudsman, which which is the, the sort of compensation scheme in the UK, in, into the process to look at things. And they were telling me they also even, um, where appropriate, will, imbr- will bring in regulators from other countries if an organisation is interested in, in operating in, in other jurisdictions. That seems really uh, handy for a company that is looking to expand across uh, multiple countries and needs to get regulatory approval. Well, I think it's one of those things that um, obviously with Brexit, we as a country are going to need to be, you know, even more international in our outlook. Um, and and it, I think is, if, if, if you look at the jurisdictions that are actively engaged um, with GFIN, it includes Hong Kong, it includes Singapore, Australia, um, a number of the Middle Eastern states, Canada. You know, it, it's a, a very forward-looking group of, uh, of nations collaborating and I think putting a, you know, creating a lot of opportunity. Um, it, it certainly uh, has been my view for some years and the things that I see going on around the world at the moment, you know, strongly support this. Um, if you look at what people want from financial planning, it doesn't matter your, your nationality, your ethnicity, your religion. Broadly, you want the same things for your family and your future. Where, wherever you're doing your financial planning. So um, my view is very much that um, we will over the next five years or so actually see the foundations of global regulation for financial planning. And that potentially opens up enormous opportunities for businesses around the world. I mean, to be fair, a lot of the Australian software companies are using uh, GFIN as a mechanism to support them coming into their coming into the UK to sell their services. Um, if, if you look at uh, a lot of the investment platforms in, in, in the UK, who are um, broadly analogous to your, to your custodians, it's when, when you compare the industries in the, in the two countries, um, Actually, a lot of the roles are the same. It's just we use different, you know, the names of the actors are different. Mm-hmm. Um, but three out of the four largest technology suppliers to the equivalent of custodians in the, in, in the UK are actually Australian or New Zealand businesses. That's, Interesting. So it, it's just the way that the sort of globalization is taking place if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, I think having said that, there is a challenge. Um, enterprises that operate in the English-speaking world need to get better at understanding the needs of nations that speak other languages. Um, it's, it's always an interesting test. Um, if I go and speak to a company, for example, in, in the US or perhaps Australia, and you talk about is a product multilingual, so often you're told, well, no, it's not, but that's easy to do. 
And the first thing that tells me is they haven't even looked at it because if you go and if you go and talk to if you talk to a Dutch software company, for example, and say is mm-hmm. is the product multilingual, you'll get quite a scathing look and like, well, we've got <laughs> three languages in our home in our home nation. What do you think? Right. Um, and when you actually talk to them about what's necessary to make a product uh, multilingual and, and multi-currency, you've got to do it absolutely at the core kernel. And if you sure. don't do that, you need to go back to square one and rebuild it from scratch. So um, let's, 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 let me just uh, jump back one second. Mm. Um, so I'm really interested in the Financial Technology Research Center, but I don't think a lot of uh, listeners know what that is. Could you explain the, the goals of the FTRC? Yeah, sure. Um, we're a boutique consultancy that basically looks at how technology can be used um, to improve the delivery of long-term financial services to consumers. So we don't get involved in banking or debt. We get very involved in typically any, anything that a financial advisor would sell. So um, savings, investment, life insurance, um, and we work with um, a lot of the insurance companies, investment platforms, um, large financial advice practices in the UK to, to help them understand how they can use technology to improve their business, improve how they're servicing their customers, both the advisor firms at the institution services service and the end customers that, um, you know, the, the advice firms. Our servicing and then you know a lot of our work as I've referred to we spend a lot of time um, looking around the world at what's going on elsewhere um, and look at what the lessons are that can be learned and where, and where there there's the opportunity to share learning and experience um, we, we produce a number of different research studies that look look at um, various products in the market we have one particular study that looks at all the different software that different advice firms in the UK might use. We're actually in the process of trying to globalize that because again, we're seeing the emergence, I think of a growing number of global advice software companies in the same way as we saw global banking software companies emerge in the eighties and nineties. So for example, if you look at um, Iris who, while they don't operate in the US, um, elsewhere in the world, they're originally an Australian company, um, but they're the second largest of largest supplier of, of advice software to UK financial advisors. They also offer it, operate in Canada, or, um, South Africa, and a number of other jurisdictions. So, you know, we're very focused on where there are opportunities for organizations to um, take services that have built for one ju- been built for one jurisdiction and reuse them. Another recent example is a company called Practify um, mm. from Australia, um, who uh, we were both at the Invest Conference um, in um, San Francisco in uh, December. You know, they were there presenting what they could offer the American market, but they're also opening in the in the UK at the moment. Um, so that's you know another example of the sort of situation where you see um, 
organizations from one jurisdiction building services that can be reused globally. Indeed. So speaking of globally, you mentioned earlier that Asia is outpacing everyone, the UK, the EU, the US. In what ways uh, is Asia, specifically wealth tech, is Asia outpacing the rest of the world? Um, well, I think part of it is the, the sheer um, pace at which um, they're embracing. One, one of the advantages that Asia has so much is they don't have the bricks to replace with the clicks. I mean, you know, if we, if, if, if we look at the UK, if That's we look good. at the That's US, I'm still you know, um, you've got, well, I mean, the best example of that is actually Africa. Mm-hmm. where it's, it's, it's well recognized. I mean, you know, the most advanced globe, uh, sorry, mobile banking in the world is in uh, places like Kenya mm-hmm. because they've never had a physical bricks and mortar banking network, for example. Mm-hmm. They've only ever had mobile banking. Again, it's quite fascinating what's going on in South Africa right now um, where they're making huge advances and being able to deliver really innovative services and what they don't have to worry about is having a legacy of you know the number of financial institutions particularly who might see a digital path as being a good thing to do but don't want to do it because it might disturb their established business and their their established distribution. I think there's a huge lesson that we can all learn from Jeff Bezos and Amazon, mm-hmm. where, you know, if you go back to the days when the business was prim- primarily about selling books, he set up a separate business two states away, deliberately geographically li- located away from the core business with the objective of cannibalize what we do. Um, and actually financial, I, I believe very strongly that financial institutions have a duty to their shareholders actually to basically create a business within their group and make it entirely independent with the objective of cannibalizing what they do. Because if you don't do it yourself, somebody else will do it to you. Very true. That, that's just a fact of, and, and, you know, how many times are, does one come across a situation in the wealth management industry where the only reason something isn't being done is because it would disturb an established domain that's seen as a profit center? Well, sooner, you know, if there's that much disturbance that can be done, someone's going to do it. And if you wait until somebody else has already started to eat into your margins, guess what? You're never going to catch up. Hmm. Um, the, innovators, the innovator's dilemma. Absolutely. Uh, well, I, 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 it is a dilemma, but that's why um, I think it is so important for organizations actually to, to set up um, and, and you know, in this establish independent units. Um, actually, for example, Aviva in the UK have done some great work, um, which now, you know, they the, the originally started in their digital garage in, in Hoxton, which literally is, by the way, a disused garage. 
Um, they now they now own most of Hoxton Square with that one way or another. But there's, they've, they've actually got garages all over the world now. You know, they've got a garage in Hong Kong. Um, they've done some amazing work with artificial intelligence, um, you know, for, for creating product. But it's the only way they were able to do that was to create a totally independent unit and say, you know what, if you hurt, if you hurt the parent company, that doesn't matter because we'd far rather that a business that we own, if anybody's going to take business from our parent company, we'd rather it was us. And I think that can apply right the way across the industry. There are, I think there are a number of reinsurers that are going down the same route as well. And um, there are other financial institutions doing that, and they, and they absolutely should do. But do they see them as, this is something we're always going to be running into, there's always going to be the biggest firms uh, blocking innovation because it's a threat to them. And doesn't well, regulation also... Isn't regulation yeah. part of what makes big firms have barriers to entry from smaller firms? You know, we're rapidly approaching the third, third decade of the 21st century. Rapidly. And yet you're, you're still hearing financial institutions plead legacy systems as to why they can't do things. But at what point does it stop? You know, and, and frankly... If that's been an issue, is certainly it has been in the UK, and my my experience, my guess would be that it's been the same in the US. Um, you know, if that's been an issue since the last century, at what point does it stop? At what point do those organisations say, "Yeah, actually, we've got to take a clean sheet of paper and start again"? Now, I know that's not easy, but at the same time, it's necessary. Otherwise, more and more organizations are going to come along with a clean sheet of paper um, and build alternative solutions, which will be, will be challenging. Oh, sure. I mean, do you see that um, Jamie Dimon just came out and said that he thought that J.P. Morgan should have been innovating, that Acorns came and took that mm -hmm. innovation that they should have been doing. But does he, yeah. does he not realize that Acorns is something that he could never do because of just the size of his company. Well, that's the whole point of trying to, you know, creating an independent unit so that you can get the best of both. And you, and you need to liberate. If you're going to have an institution with a disturbance business, it needs to give that business the freedom from the parent to actually know, go and do what's right for the disturbance business, don't be operated as a unit within something within something else. Because somewhat sooner or later, someone's going to knock on the door and say, "I know you're. I know you think this is a good idea, but it'll hurt our core business." Sure. Well, well actually, I, I was wrong. There was that wasn't Acorns. I, I misspoke. It was uh, Square. Right. That Square mm. had done things that he wished J.P. Morgan had done. Yeah. But how could they actually do that? Because, as you said, even if they set up a separate unit, there's still going to be rivalry. There's still going to be people at the board level saying, what are you doing funding that skunk works that's going to take business from us? Well, I think you need buy-in at the highest board level to recognize that the alternative of not doing that is essentially actually the alternative of not doing it is basically saying your business will cease to be cease to exist or cease to have its scale and size in the market at some point in the future 
because if you don't have a skunk works in the digital world what's your future sure you know and and that really is um yeah that's a, f a fact of life hmm. um in a in a digital economy in the digital world yeah the um so looking at some of the innovations you're, that you've seen, what, which is from the biggest wealth tech innovations that you've seen in the U.S. that are soon to be appearing in the U.K.? Um, I think there's some really sophisticated stuff being done um, in the automated advice market. And, and actually, one thing that is now happening as a direct result of... Um, the regulatory regime that we've got forcing people to be far more creative. I mean, that there, I, I am, I have seen some solutions, particularly for the decumulation market, um, that for the most part are um, more sophisticated than are, are happening in the US. I mean, things I've seen in the US that I. Any specific companies for decumulation? Would you be looking at Life Yield or what? What? What firms? Uh, well, I'm, I, I, I'm really in in the US. I'm really impressed by what United Income have have, have done. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I I, I think um, what uh, that 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 team have have, have put together is. Um, is very impressive indeed. Um, there are, I've seen some things in the UK that are coming out in the summer. I'm afraid I can't name who they're from. Mm -hmm. um, but again, are sort of in similar spaces, very sophisticated, the, you know, the ability to put in really complex solutions using a very, very wide range of different vehicles. Um, annuities, what we call drawdown products, um, and, you know, ISAs, whole range of different vehicles with different tax treatments, and then optimize a solution and, and the ability to deliver a highly sophisticated level of advice to consumers for a, a fraction of the cost um, that they would traditionally have paid a financial advisor. Um, I think that's if, if we look at how the industries in both countries are moving forward, um, I think the challenge certainly for the next five to 10 years is how can advisors achieve the optimum balance of getting the technology to do the stuff that they are best at, um, sorry, that the stuff that the technology is best at and them and focus their own attention on the bits where the interpersonal skills matter. Um, although talking about that, I mean, yeah, that's a constantly moving goal, if you like. I mean, if we go back to um, uh, T3, which we were both at a few yeah. weeks ago, um, I thought the, the proposition from Enviso from Switzerland, which was sure. the, facial recognition, uh, emotion measuring, risk profiling tool. I mean, I've actually known that company for about five or six years and, you know, consistently been impressed by what they're doing. It really does 
in, instead of having to take a customer through a 20 question questionnaire which they usually get bored with the ability to turn around to somebody and say okay watch this video for 90 seconds and then we will play back to you what your attitude to risk is mm -hmm. is really quite a compelling proposition um, from, from the customer perspective and the uh, business is it Cetera mm -hmm. uh, that yes. have embraced that in the US Cetera's built a, their risk profiling onboarding solution around it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's there's a, a couple of other interesting. Uh, there's another startup in the UK who I'm afraid I can't name at the moment, but that are doing similar things. They've actually got a system that doesn't even need you to uh, to look at the. the to look at the video, it's quite fascinating the way. So, you know, my point is we're seeing transformational technologies emerging all the time. And what might be a job that would be done by, better done by a human today, will be better done by a machine next year. And mm -hmm. the year after that, there'll be something else. And I think, the you know, again, the message such a key message for me coming out of T3 was focus on the experience that you're giving your customer and particularly recognizing that the digital experience that you're delivering to them is the impression of your business you give them 24 seven, you know, so that one, one of the questions, because certainly um, a lot of, older financial advisors in the UK are very cynical about the impact of technology. Mm -hmm. um, th these tend to be people of the baby boomer generation who um, perhaps I think, you know, there is such a big difference to compared to um, millennials who've grown up with technology around them at every point. Um, I think one of the challenge with, with some baby boomer advisors is, you know, they're not really comfortable with the technology. The number of them that I have say to me, you know, Ian, what you don't understand is that our clients don't use our, our wealthy clients don't use technology, to which my response is usually really have you looked around their homes? Um, invariably, wealthy people yeah. are, are early ad ad adopters of, of technology. So, you know, the, the, the challenge really there is to make sure what I you know, frequently say to advisors is do you want to spend more time in the office at evenings and weekends? Because if you actually look at the online services that people pre frequently go to, mm -hmm. to help them better understand their financial information, um, their busiest times will be early evening and actually very popular time for people to look at their financial their, their finances is between five and seven on a Saturday or a Sunday evening. Hmm. Well, unless you're an advisor, unless you've got a digital presence that's available to the customer during those hours to look at all their information on your web presence or your app, they're off looking for the information elsewhere. If they're off looking for the information elsewhere, are they still your customer mm -hmm. or are they in the process of finding another financial advisor? Exactly. Hey, so you, you mentioned automated 
advice uh, applications that you liked in the U.S. Which mm. ones do you uh, really like? Um, well, United Income is is one uh, that really appeals to me. Um, but I mean, there's an element of hybrid. Um, I think Personal Capital have done some great work. I think mm -hmm. it's been really interesting to watch how they've evolved um, over the last sort of six or seven years. Um, those are the ones where, you know, I'm, I'm seeing them spending more time on the sort of more, more complex solutions for the customers. Do you see work those type of solutions? I know well, I, I, this is a good segue. So you, you have um, a website where you review uh, yeah, we do the digital wealth insights sites. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so let's not, uh, I talked over that digital wealth insights.com. Yeah, that's your, it. Your website where you compare and contrast different uh, UK based robo advisor solutions. So how do they compare when you're looking at the, the ones that are in the U S versus the ones in the UK? Well, the principal difference between the U S and the UK is the advantage of the U S if you like is because there is, uh, less, a less prescriptive regulatory regime, you can pretty much do what you want. But conversely, by, because we have a more prescriptive regulatory regime over here and a regulator that will actively support organizations that want to do new things, um, I think that is driving us towards more quickly towards more sophisticated solutions. Because there are, I mean, I mean particularly, um, there's a set of regulations around assessing suitability um, in, in the UK, which means if you're doing product switches, for example, there are very, very strict rules that you have to go through um, in order that that um, switch is compliant. And if you do a switch that's not compliant, um, you're leaving yourself open to all sorts of um, risks of compensation uh, mm -hmm. action. Um, I think something else we haven't talked about yet, but that is very relevant to consider is the impact of MIFID. Now, to be mm -hmm. fair, MIFID is European legislation rather than um, UK legislation, albeit um, there are certainly those that would say, and I've, I, I have heard people say that, you know, the Brits had an awful lot of influence in um, requiring a whole lot of information to, to be disclosed. One of the things I found really interesting over the last 12 months, MIFID really began to kick in at the beginning of um, 2018. Mm -hmm. um, and it has a requirement for the advisor to disclose in pounds and pence or euros and cents terms exactly what the costs are from each different part of the transaction. So you've got to break down the asset manager's cost. You've got to break down the investment platform's costs. You've got to break down the advice costs mm -hmm. and the impact that those costs are going to have on the investment that the customer is making. And indeed, mm -hmm. Um, the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK only this week came out with an absolutely scathing report um, where they've been very critical of some investment managers 
for failing to actually apply fully and disclose transparently um, the level of charges in accordance with MIFID. It's, it's, what's been quite fascinating is some of the charge disclosure that has been required um, when the regulations were first being put together, the pushback from the industry was, um, you know, it was impossible to do this in a way that particularly the EU tends to do things. They just said, yep, yeah, okay, that's interesting. We're still going to put the legislation through. And by the way, don't worry, the fine's only 4% of global turnover if you, do, if you don't do what's necessary. Surprise, surprise, when you start facing serious levels of fine, that's the extreme, obviously. Um, but when you start ma and, and making people personally responsible for the fines, um, surprise, surprise, it's quite amazing what can be done if, if, if those are the options. But my, my real point here is 12 months ago, you would never have heard any mention of MIFID in the US. Mm -hmm. By the summer, more and more conferences I was going to, one's hearing MIFID coming up. And I, and I think it is likely one way or another to be something that will actually spread across um, the financial services industry throughout the world. And for those what, not familiar with MIFID, we should, have, we should explain it. Sorry, markets, yes. Markets and Financial Instruments Directive in the EU law. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's actually MIFID 2 we're talking about, and there is a MIFID 3 working its way through the, um, through the EU process. Um, I think there's actually versions 4 and 5 are, are, are knocking around somewhere. We need, we need well. some better marketing terms for these, these are laws. They've got to it, give it a better name. Yeah, they don't exactly make them snappy, but um, they certainly make everybody jump to attention. So you think um, that the reason that you just mentioned that you're seeing MIFID mentioned more in U.S. conferences. Now, why is that? Is it because U.S. firms are more global or are they looking to expand? Well, I, think it, I think it's U.S. firms are looking at, you know, if there is a requirement um, to deliver information in that way to continue to deal with the 28, sadly soon to be 27 EU nations, um, once you've had to build it that way, will there become pressure elsewhere to disclose in a similar way? Because all these levels of, you know, from a consumer perspective, it's actually very valuable information. Mm -hmm. It definitely produces better outcomes. I mean, you know, for example, there is a requirement um, that if the customer's portfolio falls by more than 10%, you have to, you have to notify them. Sure. Now, actually, that's a huge advice trigger, and it, it does actually create... Um, a really useful opportunity for human advisors um, actually to differentiate themselves or, or um, hybrid advisors to differentiate themselves. Because the challenge is, mm -hmm. I, I think there was a point from memory, September 2014, where US markets fell by about 11.4% within three days. Now, by November, the markets were back to where they'd been. But if you'd cashed out at the, you know, at the floor of the market, potentially it was going to take you decades to make up for the lost performance. If you were using some sort of 
very low cost, either automated system or, or, or perhaps, uh, um, you know, passives, and there'd be nobody there to say, hang on, this is a market adjustment. These things happen, hang in, it'll come back. Um, people, you know, humans traditionally make very bad, you know, if you look at behavioral finance, we have a habit of making the wrong decision. We panic. You know, it's part of the human condition, if, if you like. Yep. Um, not necessarily to to make the right decision in adverse circumstances um, and consumers particularly do that in the context of investment well actually that's an example of even with these you know even with digital changing um, the way in, in which people access consumer service uh, access financial services mm -hmm. it's creating another opportunity for evolve, ev advisors to evolve their role and be the people that are ready when necessary to supply all the additional information. And equally, the technology can be available to generate the analysis that you need to give the, the customer in that situation to provide the, the, the comfort and support. Sorry to interrupt the show, but we just need to take a quick break to talk about our awesome sponsor. This episode of Wealth Management Today is brought to you by Ezra Group Consulting. Hiring the right technology consultants can have a huge impact on your business, while the wrong ones can crater it. If your company sells software or services to the wealth management industry, Ezra Group can help you improve your products, better understand your target markets, and gain insight into your competitors. Go to ezragroup.co, that's E-Z-R-A-G-R-O-U-P.co for more information. I don't want to get too deep into regulations, but they, they, they are becoming more and more important, having a bigger and bigger footprint in wealth management and wealth technology. So, well, besides, so besides MIFID being something that a lot of U.S. firms are looking to cover, are there any other global regulations that are, also, that are having the same impact? Um, well, I suppose to a certain extent GDPR, but b before we move away from and from Mifid, can I talk brief, briefly about, um, we, we had a thing in the UK called Retail Distribution Review, um, mm -hmm. which was similar to, but far more um, detailed and far more onerous potentially to mm -hmm. financial advisors um, than your own DOL requirement, which is obviously now potentially gone, and uh, I don't think it's even potentially, it has now, um, gone away hasn't it um, and the point I want to make is in the run-up to RDR mm -hmm. most advisors believed that that you know it was going to be a devastating blow to their businesses from which they would never recover um, the reality has been and we're what six years later now um, the well, reality RDR is the retail distribution review yeah, retail distribution review as a direct you know, had which was a more onerous version of DOL and covered all forms of investment, and it's the best thing that's ever happened to the financial advice community in the UK. Mm. They are in more demand than ever. They are making more profits than ever. Um, a lot of them are working far fewer hours, mm. um, and so I think. 
one needs to be wary of, of, of sort of seeing regulation as not being the advisor's friend. For the really good advisors, for the fiduciary, it's absolutely their friend. Yeah. And, and, and you know, driving that higher standard, it's certainly, again, another pattern that was talked about a lot at T3. Mm -hmm. um, was the movement towards, you know, really the service is all about financial planning for the clients now. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's not about coming up with investment portfolios. It's not about picking funds. It's actually a lifetime planning service. Mm -hmm. And there's far more value. That enables the advisor to far more clearly differentiate the value they are adding um, as distinct from an investment service and that yeah, again, i think more you know less i don't know how it works and how it's working in the uk but in the us it's very, it's a very slow process to get advisors to understand that their value isn't picking stocks picking mutual funds picking etfs building baskets that their value is the customer relationship well i mean my, my point is because the uk community had it quite literally forced on them there was no other way they would get paid if they couldn't demonstrate that um you know so um yeah the the advice network so over here who are broadly analogous to your broker dealers all had to switch to being fee only mm -hmm. um and again it's the best thing that's ever happened to them you know their balance sheets are far stronger than they've ever been um, and it, it, it's overwhelmingly because it, it just triggered, it pushed, you weren't, there was no, there was no option. You had to make this change and actually surprise, surprise, an awful lot of customers turning around and said, Oh, this is much better. Yeah. I'd always wondered how you got paid. Mm, it's, yeah. You know, I've never had a problem mm -hmm. paying you. I value what you're doing. I like that. It's more transparent. Um, and there, you know, there was absolutely a perception in the run up to RDR that the world was going to end. Oh, sure. You know? And it, it yeah. just hasn't happened. Um, it so, has, it's never happened. No, no, indeed. And um, indeed, on the contrary, the more these things, you know, the tighter the regulations are, the better the really good advisor is able to perform because it they, they have to work to a higher standard um i think the thing perhaps we all want to be very wary of is is avoiding the sort of situation that's going on in australia right now where um there's recently been a royal commission and it, it's it's worth reading up some of the things that have um actually come out of that that royal commission unfortunately they went to a similar fee-for-service model at least in theory um, about two or three years before the UK, but unfortunately, several of the banks um, were taking the fees for services, just not providing the services. And as I say, there's been a, a whole Royal Commission um, about that in Australia, which has come out with some very, very scathing um, recommendations. Um, and again, I'm in the life insurance industry. Um, they actually identified one large financial institution that had a policy of continuing to charge premiums to people that were dead. <laughs> and it was a policy and you were talking about thousands of dead people they were still collecting their life insurance for. So um, 
I think you know that's something, and 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 the industry in Australia now is is facing some very challenging conditions mm-hmm. because they didn't face up to uh, doing things that, that 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 they could have done. So working our way up from from Australia, how about uh, China? Where, where do you see? I mean, China is looking to overtake the rest of the world and patents, and they're 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 really pushing a lot on on technology to become innovators and and change their their industries and, and their economy. To, mm-hmm. you know, so do you see any threats on the wealth tech space coming from China? Well, I mean, I think if we look at China, we look at Singapore, I mean, there, there, there's a really interesting outfit called Bamboo, mm-hmm. an automated device solution based uh, based in Singapore, but rapidly growing in, in multiple jurisdictions. Um, they're doing some really, really good work. Um, Nutmeg, which is actually um, a UK, well, it was started in the, in, in the, the, the UK as a, as a, a robo-advisor, but Nick Hungerford, the founder, um, he's no longer the CEO, but he's now basing himself over in Singapore doing some really interesting things. Um, I think so much of the innovation, you, you can begin to see it starting to come from there. Um, you know, look, just... Some, some of the um, Chinese players just growing so fast. Look at what's happening with Tencent, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they, they, they're going to be huge players. They're going to disturb markets. Um, and I think that's one thing that I wonder if um, some of the U.S. organizations that are clearly doing great work but if we are going to see, as, as I think clearly we are, a move towards global financial services, mm-hmm. technology suppliers over the next three, five years, um, in my experience, the U.S. vendors tend to be very focused on the U.S. because you've got a great market and you've got a ton of opportunities. Right. But the U.S. population is what, I think, 300, is it 340 million people a little less, a little less like under 330 but still okay there's another 6.7 million elsewhere on the planet mm-hmm. um, and places like china india africa um are absolutely ripe um i mean you know you're expecting another that there will be another two billion more middle class people in asia in the next 20 years. And it's the middle classes tend to be the people that buy financial services. Sure. So where's the real explosion gonna be? I mean, in, in truth, you know, Europe and the US are unlikely to be the, the huge global leaders that they have been historically, you know, proportionately. When do you see that tipping point occur? Well, I mean, there was one study recently suggesting that um, the Chinese economy will um, be larger than the U.S. economy next year, and perhaps more significantly that um, India will outperform the U.S. economy by 2030. So we've got only a few years left. Well, I think, and and, and the point is, the organizations that are going to really drive this change are, are, you know, building their foundations now you know they're going out there they're they're 
investing in those marketplaces. They're building relationships. You know, I think leave it another three, five years, they'll all be existing. There'll be a whole range of existing players there established in those marketplaces. So sure. if organizations are going to take advantage of the transformation that is absolutely coming, um, they need to be seriously looking at how they'll work internationally going forward. Right. Yeah, um, which I'm sure they're not thinking of. Well, I mean, I, I, it, it's I just thinking about, in my, you know, in my experience with U.S. firms, there is a tendency to say, wow, there's a huge lot of opportunity still at, hit, still at home. Let's exploit that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the biggest changes in the world are not happening in the U.S. They're not happening in Europe. They're happening in Asia. They're happening in Africa. Um, so, you know, the, I would say that the real super cap power companies of the next 20 years are going to be the companies that are really investing in those jurisdictions now and, and, and laying the foundations for serving a massive new number of customers that, you know, the customers are already born. They just haven't started making money yet. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to think about it. And, the, the, and, those, and those customers who aren't born yet are, or even who have just been born are still directing spending and directing investment, whether they know it or not. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they, they will be, you know, and it will be, um, whereas, whereas one, if one looks at um, what one might have called the first world, I'm always very, I don't like that mm-hmm. pejorative description, but, you know, if we look at the Western world, perhaps, um, the Western world is aging. Mm-hmm. You know, by comparison, all right, I know Japan's got a similar Japan, no, that's what I was thinking, yeah. but you know, other than Japan and you know, if, if, if you look at population growth um, or actually more relevant replacement rates, so mm-hmm. birth rate replacement rates in, in places like Italy, Germany, mm-hmm. you know, they're not enough people being born actually to sustain the population. So well, assuming retirement, are, assuming all things stay equal and, and, and retirement doesn't change. Yeah. Um, yes. To a, yeah. To, to if, a certain extent, but, but, if, but if, if life there, are, there are not, I mean, I, I think I'm right in saying Italy, you know, the replacement rate that you need to maintain a population is, is 2.1 children per couple. Something you like know. that. Yeah. Um, you're talking in several parts of Europe and, and Japan, it's fallen under 1.5. Oh, you mean the replacement rate of the population doesn't shrink? The birth rate, sorry. Well, but you're not seeing the young people coming through. Okay, yes, you're right. We will have a situation where, you know, retirement people will work far more in portfolio careers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, let's face it, you know, 70 is the new 50. Right. Um, Thank God. But none, nonetheless, um, you know, in those countries where you've not got the birth rate growing at the same rate, and, and actually, by the way, even in, in some of those countries I've just been talking about, their population rate is that they're now, the new birth rate is beginning mm. to 
fall below the re the replacement right. rate. Right. Which is just said, as well, because as a planet, we can't really absorb many more people. Well, they said that in the 70s, we we're going to all starve by now. <laughs> we, figured out a way, we figured out a way to not to do it. But so, but doesn't China have other problems? For example, their their high uh, their the gender imbalance, where they've got whatever fifty five men yep. for every every fifty women, or I forget the exact number, but it's 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 enough of an imbalance that it's going to cause social unrest. Uh, yeah, it is, and that really scare. If if you want to talk about wider demographic issues. Um, or wider geopolitical issues, actually, that really scares me. Mm. Because, you know, they built a very big army, and they're not doing very much. Well, that's one of the points. What, what do you do with all these young men who don't have, who, who can't find a wife, who can't build a family, who don't have jobs? You put them in the army. Yeah. And then you build a huge army, and it's got nothing to do. And nothing to do. And why'd you build the army? Yeah. That's, that's quite dangerous, too. Mm-hmm. We can't with yeah, that's exactly. Uh, but we're we're digressing again. So the um, so before we go, well, you know, we've we've uh, burned through an hour pretty quickly here, Ian. Um, I wanted to hit a couple quick questions. So mm -hmm. you are a, a conference uh, a machine, I have to say. So what you've been you've been to conference all over the world. So what are the top three five conferences that you have been to and why? Um, okay, so um, T3 is great for understanding what's going on in terms of you know, technology for advisors in the US. And it, it's, um, there is so much that one can consume from T3 and talk about trends. And we, we haven't actually talked about a whole load of other trends that no. come out from the last T3. Um, you want to throw out a couple? In terms, well, I thought the, the, the work that's being done by Edmund Waters with mm -hmm. Apprise Labs, you know, their, and with their link up with Investnet and, and Money Guide Pro um, to address the intergenerational wealth transfer, I thought in a really, really refreshing way that the, the fact that they're looking at how you can really engage the different generations um uh you, you know by getting literally into the the estate and succession planning and i, th I think you look at you know what why is it the intergenerational wealth transfer is such a challenge well as often it's not is because there hasn't been as much communication between the advisor and the people that are going to inherit the wealth well yeah actually through using the platform that a prize are putting together that's i think brilliantly positioned to actually start the dialogue with the people that are going to be inheriting the money 15 20 25 years before the transfers so hopefully you see off the problem um b before it ever really appears um so, you know, that, that, that to me, I, th I think, is really important. Uh, there was a lot being talked about, seamless onboarding and, you know, two-way exchanges of data. Mm -hmm. um, at, I've lost count of the number of conferences that one or other person has made reference to the, the, the sort of 
changing financial advisor and setting up a new whole new load of accounts as being slightly less pleasant than root canal. <laughs> um, sure. And yet still we, we, we have that situation. It's improving, but it, it needs to be better. We, we could probably go on for longer than we could, uh, than, than we have left to be able to just, just talking on that. Other events to really call out. I think the invest conference in July in, in New York is absolutely one of my favorites. I mean, for the, for looking at pure wealth tech and both a great mix of the traditional wealth industry and the emerging digital wealth industry. Um, their event in San Francisco in, in December was equally, you know, while it was smaller, it was, it was great to be at. Um, Finnovate's good around the world, but you're getting a very, very broad range of things. Um, for insurance, I've already um, mentioned the iPipeline Connections event. Those are a few of my favorites, certainly. And I mean, one, one that actually I will call out that was great, and I'm not sure what the, pla the plans are for next year, but Finnovate Africa was a real eye-opener. Again, oh. it was the first time that they'd done an African event, but it was absolutely fascinating in terms of going on and, and learning um, quite how much people will do when they've got a clean sheet of paper. Sure. Um, and also that came out of that Finnovate Africa conference that you really thought was impressive. Um, I have, well, particularly the impact that, um, challenger banks are having on the traditional banking market over there where you, you've got sort of four or five very large banks that dominate the market out there. Um, but there are six different challenges coming out in the next year or so. One of particularly comes from um, what's known as discovery over there in the, in, in the US and the UK. They would be more recognized as vitality. Um, but there was a great comment from one of the private equity analysts, actually, who pointed out that um, discovery in South Africa tend to attract the customers that are most profitable for the bank. And he actually gave a, a sounded a, a big warning to the established banks in South Africa that if you had a business with the profile that Discovery have, where they really focus on um, delivering healthcare experiences as well, um, they were ideally placed to farm away the million and a half to two million most attractive customers from the bank. So they wouldn't take the low value people where they don't make a lot of money of them, but their warning was very much discovery have got a perfect model for coming along and taking away all the best banking customers from established financial institutions. Right. So that I thought was a really interesting eye opener. And they did actually have the COO of discovery gave a really good presentation about how they've built their business in South Africa um, and around the world. Fascinating company. Try looking up their Korean television ads. Um, <laughs> I will. But yeah, I mean, someone else, if you um, Google Vitality, Vitality Korea, uh, quite brilliant. Vitality Any, Career? Yeah, Vitality Career. 
I'm writing that I down. think it's actually AIA that are the underlying uh, insurer behind it. So Vitalis, you have a model. They're, they're the, the primary insurer in South Africa and the UK. Mm-hmm. And then in the US, for example, they licensed to John Hancock in Canada. It's Manulife. Elsewhere, it's, uh, I think, Australia and Korea, it's AIA. Cool. All right, so um, I'm going to go a, a quick lightning round here to close sure. things out. So trending up or down, I'm going to throw out some, some, some ideas and you can you tell me if you think they're trending up or trending down. Mm-hmm. Robo-advisors. Um, I think trending up, but it will evolve a long way from what people see as robo-advice today. Why do you say that? Um, the solutions will need to be far more sophisticated. You know, at, at the moment, most, most of Robo 1.01, Robo 2.0 isn't really that powerful. The, the majority of them, I'm, you know, people like United Income accepted, um, maybe per cap, but the majority of them really aren't providing the more, the greater granular experience, a full, you know, when are we going to see a robo advice experience that really gives you a full financial plan, soup to nuts, Mm. you know, looks at your protection needs, looks at your short term savings needs, looks at your long term savings needs. Well, when are we going to find a a financial advisor to do that? There are not as many as there should be. I mean, that that's that's calling out, you know, particularly uh, protection is a, is a, a a key point of mine. That not enough wealth planners. I'm not sure how someone can call themselves a financial planner and not look at somebody's life insurance needs. And that's uh, most of the U.S. I think most U.S. financial advisors don't sell life insurance. Well, you know, I, I thought that protection was actually financial planning 102. You know, 101 is emergency funds mm-hmm. and protecting the family should be 102 before you even get to. I think that's a big and it's a big hole in the UK as well. I mean, to put it in context, there are 44,000 financial advisors in the UK. Mm-hmm. Of that, only 4,000 regularly sell life insurance and only four, mm-hmm. 1,500 do it every week. So we've got the same, but there's, there's a new site that we've just launched, which is protectionguru.co.uk, which we are aiming to help improve the level of education um, around life insurance in the UK. And we're actually gauging if there's an appetite for that elsewhere in the world, but that's perhaps one for another day. Next question. Definitely. Yeah. There's a difference in terminology in the UK versus the US. When you ask someone the USDR protection, they don't think about life insurance. (laughs) <laughs> no, indeed, indeed. I get into that. So, okay, trending up or down, Ian? Micro saving apps. Um, micro savings definitely up. Um, I think micro savings seems to have managed. Um, when when we look at the um, adoption of micro savings in the UK, proportionate compared to the ad- adoption of robo advice in the UK, um, micro savings is probably twenty times more popular than robo advice, but doesn't get anywhere near the amount of um, coverage. Um, And those guys are beginning to build up some really significant, what they've managed to do um, is actually make saving an innate thought process. I see the same thing happening here with acorns, stash, money lion. 
these kind of firms. Yeah, those, those guys are actually, they're, ra they're laying real foundations for the future. Mm -hmm. Exactly. All right, so trending up or down, financial planning. Oh, absolutely up. Definitely up across the board. What do you, you know, that's what people really need. At the top end, people are willing to pay for it. At, at, at the lower end, people need it. And there's the opportunity, you know, the really powerful automated advice solutions. I would say the ones that will win in the end will be the ones that deliver the ability to provide people with a full financial plan for a few hundred pounds or a few hundred dollars mm -hmm. and to allow them to pay a relatively modest subscription Mm -hmm. month in month out to, to have that plan actually updated based on a um a feed from open banking um which is becoming you know th there's great work being done around the world on open banking on on really taking all that data that the banks have kept to themselves and using it to inform the customers and help them make better financial decisions hmm. and finally trending up or down Artificial intelligence in advice. Um, trending up, I think it's one of those classic scenarios where it will have a dramatic effect in the long term, um, perhaps less in the short term. Actually, what I expect to see the most of and maybe this is more relevant to the UK market than it is to the US because of our um, more exacting um, regulatory standards. Um, but, you know, AI in the UK is likely to be a back office and compliance function. So that I'm anticipating when I was looking at this, about this time last year, I was asked to do some work for a, a large distribution business looking at the things they needed to be considering over the next five years. And when I started, AI was, when I started writing the presentation, AI was, I was thinking it was a five year time horizon. By the time I gave the presentation hmm. about three, four weeks later, I'd hmm. moved that into a three year time horizon. <laughs> if you asked me at Christmas, I would have said it was an 18 month time horizon and I probably haven't moved that, but I mean, you know, we have things called power planners in the UK who do an awful lot of the underlying work behind the scenes mm -hmm. uh, and they're now getting to be ridiculously expensive to employ. So when I go into, you know, the C-suite at some of these large C-suite people at large advice firms in the UK, the main thing they're asking me for is a robo power planner. So yeah. actually the technology behind the scenes to do the advice job. Um, so it delivers the package to the financial advisor that the advisor just goes out and pre presents. That's, I think, a very, very big role. Um, but particularly where it will come first, I, th I think the main place that we'll see AI um, really become a core part of things quickly is in the compliance area. You know, you won't give a piece of advice without running, you know, as you're generating the analysis report to deliver to the customer, yeah. you can actually, you know, if you've got enough data on enough cases that you know that you've written successfully that are compliant, you can very quickly identify where the core propositions are and where the outliers are and which ones need human review.
And that can take an awful lot of cost out of businesses quickly. Yes, it could. Ian, you are a, a truly an evangelist and a futurologist. Thank you, sir. And I appreciate your time. Don't do a bad job yourself, by the way. You, you, you do come up with some, some really great summaries uh, of the various conferences around the world. Well, thank you. This is the point in, the, in my podcast where the guests compliment me. So thank you for that, for leading right into that. I didn't, I didn't even have to prompt you. <laughs> well, you know, I, as I say, you do a great job of it. So it would, it would be remiss of me not to highlight that. If, if everybody should be looking for the uh, Wealth Management Today summaries of conferences. Thank you, Ian. And your check is in the mail. <laughs> and this has been a pleasure. I really, and I always enjoy our conversations when we're, when we're together, uh, traveling around the country, the U.S. at least. And uh, now we, we can say we enjoy our conversations when we, when we talk remotely on the podcast. Absolutely. We should do it again sometime. <clears throat> I'm going right. to get I'll, it in the calendar. I'll look forward to seeing you at a conference somewhere in the near future, I'm sure. Likewise, Ian. Okay. Take care, Thanks. Craig. Take care. Bye. Hey, everyone. It's Craig again. Just a few quick items before we go. If you like this episode, please give it a five-star review on iTunes. I would very much appreciate it. And remember to check out the show notes for links to everything we talked about on this episode. For more information on wealth management technology, you can read my Wealth Management Today blog at wmtoday.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I'm looking forward to talking to you all again next week.